Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro the Pod. Squirrel here on the morning of Halloween, Tuesday the 31st of October, Melbourne time. This podcast is our usual companion to the weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, charts, and a multitude of links that I may refer to in this pod. It also contains our portfolio, portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trade ideas. I have, yes, still not yet mastered audio editing software, and so I record this in a single take. So please forgive any stumbles. But before we start, as usual, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before taking any investment decisions, for heaven's sakes, don't listen to a cartoon rodent, talk to a financial advisor. Now this week, we're going to see if Halloween has other plans for Santa. In early October, I wrote a jokey tweet commenting on how the level of 4200 on the S&P 500 was fast approaching. Now, this was a level that many pundits were absolutely convinced would act as a support level from which a traditional year-end, also styled Santa Claus rally, would launch. Markets were very wobbly at the time, a technical term again, and I joked that it did not seem like such a no-brainer. The irony is that it should always feel terrible trying to call a turn in trend in markets. Sadly, the world has become a much more sober place since I tested the resolve of the seasonality optimists, as it turned out that I tweeted on what turned out to be the eve of Hamas's brutal attacks on Israel. I was indeed sceptical then, but it's tough not to accept that less than four weeks on, we're now in a, living in a significantly more dangerous world. However, with the possible exception of gold and Bitcoin, and I have theories on the move in both, it does not look as though risk assets have got the memo. The end of last week saw equities slice through that 4200 level as though it didn't exist. But taking a step back, US equities are now less than 3.5% lower than where they were immediately before the Hamas attacks. Many of the merchants of doom would have us believe that we're, we're all on the verge of a much broader conflict in the Middle East, yet crude oil is basically flat versus the level it was pre the attacks. And so much so, so much for the safe haven of US dollar cash, the DXY index is actually down by two-tenths of a percent since the outbreak of war, and yields on the US 10-year bond are actually higher. Those bond bills continue to get pounded. We'll talk about the 9% almost $200 move in gold a little bit later on. But given that all the bears remain in chest-beating mode, and the sentiment readings would have us believe that the October 1987 crash analogues had actually played out just as everyone had been so confidently forecasting. I do like CNN Business's Fear and Greed Index as they break down the individual components on the indicator. What you can see at the moment is that momentum and market breadth indicators in the share markets are consistent with the fear narrative. However, if you look at junk bond spreads, they have actually somewhat amazingly narrowed versus their high-grade counterparts in the last four weeks. So much for risk off. There's also, also zero evidence of any widespread panic buying of index put protection, even if the jokers will always tell you that puts are only ever bought at the wrong time. Measures of volatility are well below the high seen during last, last October's guilt crisis in the UK and at the time of the Silicon Valley Bank, bank collapse back, back in March of this year. My friends at Harkster beautifully summarise the challenges now facing the resolute Santa Claus rally fans with their somewhat tongue-in-cheek um, red-on-the-trading-floor piece from last Friday. 
I'm going to read this out directly. Theme three. As bearishness sentiment hits euphoria and Santa Rally still has a chance if the stars align. And they cited, one, US data softens but doesn't collapse to year end, confirming the Fed being done. Two, after his meetings with PBOC and safe, China hits the large fiscal button sitting in the middle of Xi's desk. Three, bonds will be relieved if the Bank of Japan doesn't widen again next week. Four, buybacks restart for corporates. Treasuries have to get those shares in before bonuses are paid by the end of January, early February. Everybody loves it when they get struck on their options at the high of the year, as is so often the case in February. Israel don't launch a full-scale grounds assault on Gaza. Six, window dressing, rotation, rebalancing. Seasonals still have a chance once fixed income volatility can moderate, which brings us back to point one. Duration needs US data to soften. Who am I kidding? At best, we should first look for signs of consolidation. Short-term squeeze, but there is now an alternative. Long-end duration offers a guaranteed income profile with dividend yield not offering enough premium relative to the uncertainty surrounding equities to end 2023 and into 2024. Now, the squirrel does not share the Harkster team's comfort with long-duration fixed income risk yet, but that is what makes a market. As it's now Tuesday morning, I can assure the kids that, can, that Santa has safely swerved two of those macro bullets mentioned by the team. The Bank of Japan has now, in its customary form, leaked overnight to the Nikkei newspaper that they will allow the yield on their 10-year bonds to exceed 1%. The dollar-yen cross rate and US yields barely skipped a beat. Next up, um, we had the announcement um, this afternoon, US time, that Mrs. Yellen's quarterly borrowing number came in $76 billion. That's about 9% less than the bond traders were expecting. At the margin, this is helpful to bond bulls, but I don't think it really changes the outlook. So why is sentiment so poor? Q3 US GDP growth coming in at 4.9% certainly surprised to the upside last week, although the bears were very quickly quick to blame that on one-off spending relating to um, Taylor Swift and Barbie, one of the best economic narrative stretches I've seen this year. The kickoff in earnings season for the big US tech stocks came last week. The usual headline beats were manufactured as ever, but I think the market sensed tentativeness on the management conference calls, particularly around forward guidance and outlook. There were a lot of tepid noises around cloud services in particular. But at the end of the day, prices don't lie. Notwithstanding a bit of a bump on Monday, the market generals of large cap tech are starting to look a little bit weary. A simple 50% Fibonacci retracement of their year-to-date gains could see the FANG stocks down another 15% from current levels. Positioning in these magnificent seven stocks remains elevated. It's not just the US hedge funds that are hiding out in these year-to-date winners. Retail and foreign institutional investors are also extremely overweight in these names. These big companies have so far shown amazing resilience in the face of higher interest rates. Obviously, it's not having an impact on their earnings. In fact, these giants are actually enjoying the benefits of interest income on their vast cash piles. Alphabet Google alone will clip over $5 billion of interest income on its cash with another 12 months of these short-term rates. However, at some point, the market will have to start to discount these growth companies' longer-dated cash flows at the new rate. This will be expressed via their trading multiples where there is a significant price-earnings multiple premium that is at risk of compression. 
Bloomberg's John Authors posted a great chart based on Bernstein analysis in one of his opinion pieces last week. It was basically a regression plot of 20 years worth of forward earnings multiples for the S&P 500 index versus 10-year US Treasury yields. Right now, the S&P 500 is trading at about 19 times forward earnings, when a level of 14.8 times would be appropriate for the corresponding rate environment that we have right now. Breaking that down further, the Magnificent Seven stocks are trading at 28 times, with the other 493 at around 16 times, which is still a premium to that 14.8. Basically, the rest of the market is already, one, dealing with this PE multiple adjustment, and two, feeling the actual pain of the new interest rates. The further down you go through the market capitalization spectrum in the index, the more likely you are to encounter companies where higher rates are already flowing through to their income statements. The strategy team at SOCGEN has done some great analysis looking at the effective interest rates among the various cohorts of the largest 1,500 listed US stocks. For the top 150 companies, unsurprisingly, the rate has barely budged as these companies all managed to term out their debt at record low levels seen during the pandemic and it's in its immediate aftermath. The story for the next 600 companies is a tick up in effective rates, but nothing too alarming yet. But for the bottom 50%, effective rates have literally hockey sticked up. Now, this stock chain team, which is led by Albert Edwards, have a uber bearish tendencies. But you have to wonder at, some, at, at this somewhat graphic turn of phrase describing the effect. And they say, mega cap weighted whoops of delight have drowned out the cries of pain elsewhere. You only need to turn your gaze at the smaller listed and unlisted companies to witness the torture being inflicted by the fence interest rate garrotting. Well, we can see the impact already in the equal weighted S&P, which is now flirting with its 200-day moving average for the first time since the outbreak of COVID in 2020. In the small caps, it's a full-on massacre. Their effective, effective interest rates have fully caught up with front-end rates, and the Russell 2000 broke pre-COVID price levels last Friday. It is understandable that the mood of the average equity investor is fairly bleak right now. Even Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan thinks it's time to ring the register and pay some long-term capital gains taxes. He announced that he was selling some of his stock in the bank for the first time in 17 years. Certainly the first time since he was CEO. And yet we still need to get through this week, which brings with it plenty of potential Halloween surprises. Even with the Bank of Japan leak and Mrs. Yellen's overdraft plans out of the way, we still need to get her mix of maturities in what is called the QRA on Wednesday. And we've got a bunch of other macro banana skins. We have the Fed meeting itself on Wednesday, as well as big economic data in the form of EU inflation and a big US jobs number on Friday. And then there's the very small matter of some Q3 earnings for the remaining market mainstays on Thursday with Apple, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. Continued tensions in the Middle East will obviously dominate the broader backdrop. At the moment, markets are quite happy to take geopolitical premium out of the oil price. WTI crude futures were down over $3 a barrel overnight. So how does the squirrel feel? Well, to quote the legendary Dennis Gartman, the original OG in this financial newsletter game, I'm flat and I'm nervous. 
well, I'm not completely flat, but I'm being very tentative and see no reason to be either aggressively long or short equity or interest rate risk right now. For this reason, I didn't publish the new private equity acorn this week. This isn't a paper portfolio. I only publish these when I'm ready to put on the trade myself. A bit annoying as Blackstone was down over 5% last week, although it had a decent bounce overnight. We'll have a much better sense of the outlook for the balance of 2023 and early 2024 once we've safely made it to next Friday. Finally, I teased a comment about safe haven assets earlier. As I suspected, Mrs. Ch Mrs. Yellen has chosen not to spook the market this week. Um, we, we will see her final bond issuance plans on Wednesday, but I don't think that she is going to put even more pain on the long end of the Treasury market. I think this was made even more likely by last week's wobble in equity markets. And yes, I'm afraid I'm absolutely convinced that the Fed and Treasury do worry about equity prices a great deal more than they let on. The gold market has clearly sensed some kind of disturbance in the force. To be clear, I'm absolutely not, absolutely not a dyed-in-the-wool gold bug. I set out my thoughts on this topic back in March in a piece jokingly called Scrooge McSquirrel. Do check it out on the website. More recently, in mid-September, we took advantage of rock-bottom levels in gold implied volatility to buy a very small straddle on gold future, which has done well. Um, however, more interestingly, our Scrooge McSquirrel call, call spread on the GLD gold ETF from back in March has started to show some Lazarus signs of life. Lazarus-like, I should say, signs of life. That trade was positioned as a right-tail moonshot back in March, but it no longer feels like a ridiculous position to have on the books. Recent moves have certainly scared off some of the short positions in gold futures markets. However, the GLD ETF amazingly saw some investor outflows last week. According to Bank of America data, the wealth management industry in the US is still steadfastly refusing to acknowledge gold's role in portfolios as a risk diversifier. And the machines of the trend-following CTA still look to be plenty short gold. In fact, the only consistent accumulators would appear to be foreign central banks, particularly those one, ones in emerging markets. I'm always a bit nervous when it comes to the outlook for gold and silver when things like silver squeeze or sort of hashtag silver squeeze start to trend on social media. How we are staring down the battle of a multi-theater war while government bond markets in key developed countries appear dysfunctional at best. Yes, I do worry about the current elevated bullish sentiment readings in gold and silver, often a sign that we've come too far too fast, but it feels like the precious metals complex is fast approaching what may be its big show me moment. Does the squirrel have enough of the yellow fella? Maybe Santa has some gold bars for us on that sleigh of his. He may well do, but he's got to make it through to the other end of this Halloween week of macro hell first. Well, that's all for the pod this week. In the written report this week, we also have a full ACORN review covering energy, offshore, agricultural commodities, private equity, Mercedes, DoorDash, China, India, Coinbase and Uranium, as well as our usual portfolio update. Thanks for listening. Um, please find out more about The Squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Squirrel Macro. See you next week. Squirrel out.